0: Extended series, a study through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew's the first of the books of the New Testament. We are in Matthew 16. Uh, Matthew 16, we're going to read verses 13 through 20, okay? So just verses 13 through 20. Not a long text, but there's a lot in there. Oh, it is so dense and compact. Uh, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Hear now the Word of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, clearly you had some particular things in mind for your disciples there that day as you spoke those words and engaged with them in the way that you did. And we know that uh, those words were important for you have preserved them. And we have it here in the Gospel of Matthew, part of Holy Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit So we know that every word here is no more and no less than what you wanted to be recorded. And you love us so that indeed you have preserved it all these years. And we have the luxury this morning of having it right in our laps. But a responsibility too, to engage with the text and be engaged with it and then to live according to it. And we can't do any of that. We can't understand it without your help, and we certainly can't live out of it without your help. So we ask for both. As I said just a moment ago, there's a lot here. It's dense. Uh, We don't want to lose sight of the forest for the trees. Uh, We we ask for your mercy, your help. Uh, Oh, that you would give us and help us to see the great uh, uh, encouragement, the emboldenment that you mean for us to have because of what we see here. Search us, O God. Know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in us. Lead us in the way everlasting. We pray in your name, amen. A lot of different kinds of puzzles out there. I don't know how many of you are are into that. A lot of different kinds of picture puzzles. Uh, certainly one of the classics through the years as our kids were growing up, and I think the series still goes on to some extent today, Where's Waldo, right, the weird-looking little skinny dude with the red, uh, red and white striped uh, shirt. Find him in the crowd, that kind of thing. Uh, you, you can see such things in, in other places. Perhaps it's a magazine. It's got a little picture in there towards, towards the front. It says, hey, find the, I don't know, 12 hidden keys, you know, and the artist has just sort of you know, intricately interwoven those in, in what's there. Uh, one of my favorites growing up was, What's wrong with this picture? And, and you're, you're looking at it, and you, of course, you, there are some things when you, be- the closer you look, the more you see, it. Oh, well, that doesn't go there, and that doesn't go there, and that's kind of weird, and all that sort of thing. What's wrong with this picture? That's life. I mean, honestly, I look at my life, I know you look at your life, and we think to ourselves, What's wrong with this picture? We just have this nagging sense all the time, to the degree that we're honest, that something isn't right. Or perhaps it's more than a nagging sense, sometimes it's a piercing scream that something isn't right, something's not right with with this picture, and you can go big in terms of thinking about things such as, say, childhood disease or political corruption or rampant poverty, Or senseless crimes. I mean, I could have just brought the newspaper, local, state, and national, and just, you know, read some stuff. Or we could just like share how our week has been. And we have to start asking the question uh, what's wrong with this picture? Every person who's honest begins to, to wrestle with this and begin, this, this thought begins to erupt from the, the deepest part of our hearts. It ought not to be this way. Now, that, of course, implies an ought, right? You, you can't say a line is crooked if you don't have a straight line to compare it to, but that's another sermon, so I don't want to go down that, that road. Um, every person feels this. It ought not to be this way. Every culture feels this as well. To some degree or another. And ancient Israel was no exception at all. And their sacred text, what we refer to today as the Old Testament, spoke to this time and time again. But also with a uniqueness, and that was the the, the promise, the assurance of this one who was to come, who would reclaim, redeem, restore, renew all things the Messiah. The Christ, this one who would come as the son of Adam through the line of Abraham, through the line later of David, he would come and renew all things, all things. Well, I have good news. Those texts were right. And he has come and his name is Jesus. Jesus is indeed this Christ, this long-awaited Messiah come to make all things new. And it is for him that we must long and to him that we must look. And that's what this text is about. When you see the forest for the trees and don't get lost in one because of the other. Jesus is the Christ, the one come to renew all things for whom we should long and to whom we must look. That's what we see here. It's the beauty of these verses that we just read just a moment ago. So how do we see this? How do we see Jesus is this Christ, come to renew all things? You've got your outline there. It's three basic points. We're going to navigate our way through this over the next few minutes. First, we see this, this reality. He is the one come to renew all things, clearly, in this confession that is is spoken, that is given. That's the first thing. Then we see it also in this assurance that is set forth. And then finally in this prohibition that is laid out. So the confession, the assurance, and the prohibition. Those those three things. You see it there in your outline, the points and the subpoints. So let's take these one at a time and just move through this text the best we can. So first this confession. It's quite remarkable. There are verses 13 For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, there's a lot of stuff worth noting here just in those verses. I'm going to go quickly through that and, but help you to see. First is the setting. First, geographically, where this took place is, is really important to note. Caesarea Philippi, 20-25 miles north of where Jesus has spent most of his ministry, 20-25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee specifically. Uh, this is an area at that time that was a center of the worship of caesar caesar as as the roman emperor was regarded was to be regarded understood revered as a god and so temples were set up to, to worship him so that's part of what's going on there and that temple was there at the site where they in you know reached some some close proximity to where they were and where this conversation is taking place but years before that years before it was a worship place for caesar It was a worship place for Pan, the Greek god of nature. And years before that, it was a place of worship for Baal, or Baal, the god of the Canaanites. There's a rich but sad history at this place, Caesarea Philippi. Years gone by, a place of human sacrifice. And still today, you can visit that site, and you can see the ruins of this giant cave And see the spring waters coming down from, through the mountains, from Mount Hermon. You can see the rock badgers, the hyrexes, scurrying about on the cliffside. You can see the ruins of the shrines built up into that cliff. It's huge, just enormous to stand there at at the base of it. You can see all of that. And Jesus clearly is intentional in taking his disciples to this place to press these things upon their minds and hearts. He didn't do this down there in, near Galilee. He takes them up into this predominantly Gentile region where you have all these streams literally and metaphorically coming together, both not you know, just water, but also of ancient pagan religion and all these worldviews, and he stakes a claim. You could even say he throws down a gauntlet right in the midst of it all. purposefulness in what he is doing and the place where this is taking place. Um, okay, that's the first thing, the, the setting. And then the titles, the titles, the confession itself. What is it that Peter says? All right, well, so, so Jesus asked this question. You have it there in, uh, in verse 14. They said, some say John the Baptist, well, excuse me, he asked the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So, he's putting it out there. He He knows, but he's engaging with his disciples on this point. In their answer, in their sifting through the poll data, data, what they're saying is in essence, well, they say, Jesus, you're a great guy. I mean, you're a prophet. You're a spokesman of God. Now, if you and I, if people described us that way, we'd be like, whoa, that's pretty cool. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. But the problem is that's not, not enough to speak of Jesus that way and so he presses them. He presses hard on them, and he it turns, he wants to know not just what do they say, but what do you say? And in fact, even in the Greek, it, it reads something like this, but you, who do you say? It's reiterated there. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, as the spokesman for the apostles, replies, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the long-awaited Messiah. You are the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, the one to whom all those great men in the past, their offices and their function and their job, was pointing and preparing the people for all of Israel's history, all of the ceremonies, all of the great events, and their whole everything, was preparing and pointing the way towards Him. You are the Christ. It is you. You, and you are the son of the living God. Now, again, keep in mind the geographical setting. You are the son of the living God, as opposed to all these counterfeit gods that ever have been and ever will be and ever are now. You are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. This is an astonishing thing for Peter to say. It's a stunning thing. It's great, tremendous insight that he would have. How did he have it? How did Peter come to that moment where he could say that with any level of conviction whatsoever? Jesus speaks to that. He speaks to that uh, very clearly here. Uh, Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. Now, that is simply a way, it's an Aramaic way of saying Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So he speaks of Peter's father, he speaks of flesh and blood, and what in essence he's saying is, you did not come to this understanding and conviction on your own by natural means. This came upon your mind and your heart through supernatural means. My heavenly Father, not your earthly father or anybody else, my heavenly Father opened your eyes. To see who I really am. And it has to be that way. Because only God can reveal God. Only God can reveal God. And he did. And he does. So in all of this when you just taking a step back the setting, the titles, the insight, Jesus is showing himself to be the Christ and is shown to be the Christ, both in what Peter says and how it is that he comes to say. And I just want to drill down on this just for a moment before we go on to the next point. How do any of us, how do any of us come to know anything true about Jesus? How do any of us come to know anything true about Jesus? Remember, only God can reveal God. It is not, I'm not saying you're not clever. I'm not saying you're not sharp. Please don't, I'm not, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. But I am saying this, it's not because of that. It might even be despite that, frankly, because of how bent much of our cleverness can be. And it is not because of the winsomeness or the forcefulness of another person's arguments. Only God can reveal God. So if you or I know anything true about Jesus this morning, our hearts should be overflowing with humility, awe, wonder, and gratitude. Because how is it that we know anything about him? And indeed, further, our hearts should be committed to fervent, patient, persevering prayer that others that we know and care for in our lives would have their hearts warmed in the same way. Because again, how do we come to know? Only God can reveal God. Jesus is the Christ back to this Jesus is the Christ he's the one for whom we should long he's the one to whom we should look we see that in the confession I'm going to move to the second point we see it also with this assurance that Jesus gives right on immediately we're not talking hours later days later like seconds later then these words come in verses 18 and 19. and I'll just tell you just real quick this is where we can get lost in the forest because of the trees. This is where things get really dense right here in verses 18 and 19, let me read it. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, that's immediately clear, isn't it? The foundation. Jesus is speaking here of a foundation, of sorts, of some kind. And I have to tell you that apparently there's a riddle in here. There's a play on words. You can't see it in the English, but it's there in the Greek. Maybe your footnotes at the bottom of the page of your English translation might say this. What Jesus says is something along these lines. Petros, Peter, you will be, or you are, the Petra, the rock. Petros, you're the Petra. There's a play on words there in the Greek quite clearly. Now, some of you may know uh, there have been some pretty strong positions staked on the score uh, for centuries, not for just you know, a few weeks, for centuries. This is with a source of the Roman Catholic position that would say that Peter in himself is the rock. Okay. Now, we simply have to say that if Peter himself is the rock, If you know anything about Peter and his biography in the Gospels, and as you keep reading through Acts, and frankly, as you read 1 and 2 Peter, what he wrote himself, you would have to say that first, he never thinks of himself that way. The early church, as recorded in the book of Acts, never thought of him as that way. And also, just thinking about Peter as the man, that would be a very unstable foundation on which to rest things. And that becomes clear, Lord willing, we'll look at the text next week very clear, just immediately the sequel, the conversation takes place right after this. And on top of that, as though that wasn't enough, Jesus makes it very clear in other places of the Scriptures that He is the foundation, He is the rock, He is the cornerstone. No mortal man in and of themselves. Okay, so the Roman Catholic position has a problem. In reaction to that, as a corrective to that, many have said through the years, well, because it can't be Peter in and of himself, it must then be what Peter said. It's Peter's confession is the rock, the foundation on which the church is built. But that doesn't go far enough. That doesn't. That's not honest with the text. So where are we? Here's where we are. Peter and the apostles, as they confess, Jesus as the Christ is the rock. That's what's going on here. The rock is the apostolic testimony of Jesus as the Christ, and that is the foundation upon which Jesus builds the church. Okay? So that's what's going on here as far as this foundation. Jesus builds on that foundation. Do we have any certainty of that? Do we have any assurance of that? Yes, we do. Immediately after Jesus says that he pushes even further. So I'm going to read verse 18 again. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's your assurance. Now, you, you might think, though, that what Jesus is saying is that, well, the gates of hell cannot withstand it. So that must mean that Satan and his minions cannot withstand the assaults of the church as they push forward. And, and you might think that because gates, we understand, you know, gates in a city wall are, are structural things. They don't move out on a battlefield. They're defensive things. So you might have the idea that that's the idea. The gates of hell cannot withstand the assault of the church. The problem with that interpretation, the problem with that reading is the gates of hell, actually properly translated the gates of Hades, was a popular expression at the time referring to the realm of the dead. It was just known. That's what, when people use that expression, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, it was understood that's the realm and power of the dead. So what Jesus is saying, you've got to put yourself back in the first century sandals. The people, as they're hearing this, as they're understanding this, not as what we would impute on that. What Jesus is saying is, is that I am building my church on the foundation of the apostolic witness and nothing, not even death itself will stop it. That's what he's saying. That's the assurance that he is giving. That's the certainty that he is giving. I am building my church on the foundation of the apostolic witness and nothing, not even death itself that we think, and Dave rightfully shot back at, we think is so final, right? Not even our most terrifying enemy can stop it. How will that come about? Jesus speaks to that as well here. How does it come about? by, By what means will he build his church through this testimony? Verse 19. Right after verse 18, we go on. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The imagery here is important to just think through, and it's, it's not as hard as it may seem. What do keys do? Right, keys lock and unlock. They close and open. They uh, loose and unloose. In, in the words that Jesus, they bind and, un, and, and, uh, and, and loose. The, the idea here is that the keys are being held by in the hand of a steward on behalf of the master of the property the master of the house who is charged to care for that house and to grant admission to those who belong and to bar it from those who don't and so what jesus means here in this imagery especially in the context of what he is saying is that as as we go forth with this proclamation of the gospel specifically in this case jesus is the christ one of two things is going to happen People will receive this message and the door will be opened, or they will reject this message and the door will be closed. And it's worth noting here that we we don't have any authority in and of ourselves as heralds, as messengers. In fact, it comes out even in, in I think some of your English translations might have this towards the bottom, the verb tenses. It's important, it's helpful to even note the verb tenses here. Uh, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, and here's a subtle way, but it's important, shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It's not on our authority. We're doing something. We're simply pronouncing something that's already been sent from heaven, pronounced from heaven. We have no authority. We have no claim in and of ourselves. We are but heralds, royal messengers with a message from the king himself and others that need to hear. Okay, now let me take a big step back from this the forest, the trees, everything. What are we seeing here? An extraordinary promise. An astonishing assertion, uh, assurance that's being given. He is going to build the church on the foundation of the apostolic witness. Nothing can stop it. And he's doing that through even broken vessels like you and me as we lisp this message to the watching listening world. That's an astonishing thing to say, especially right there before that cliff at Caesarea Philippi, throwing down the gauntlet. For all the world and religions of the world to hear and see. Jesus is showing himself here to be the Christ. Again, I know it's easy to lose sight of, of, the, of the main thing here. And as I alluded to this a moment ago, and I know some of you may already recognize this, that this, this is where the Roman Catholic Church gets the idea of, of Peter being the first pope and the pope being, each pope being the successor of Peter, their reigning in Rome, but that simply, I'm not trying to be unkind, I'm just trying to be honest and clear. That simply will not do. The, the text simply will not, will, will not support it. What we need to be focusing on in this text, is, as important as those issues are, is the certain assurance of this promise. Jesus is telling us here what he will do and how he will do it. And we dare not lose sight of that. The forest because of the trees. The Christ. Jesus is this Christ to whom, for whom we must long, to whom we must look. And there's one more thing, and it, and it might be easy just to overlook because it's just one verse, and it seems like you, know, you kind of get lost. By the time you get to verse 19, you're just tired, and, and you just kind of you almost you glaze over what, what's going on there in, in verse 20. But we ought not to do that. So, at, you know, after all this is said, Jesus asks a question, they respond. He asks another question, he responds, and you get this you know, forest that he puts forward. Get to verse 20, and it sounds puzzling, but it's worth noting. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the prohibition uh, I mentioned earlier. So you have this confession that Peter gives, and we talked about how it is that he's able to do that. he have this assurance that Jesus gives Connection to that. And then immediately on the heels, we have this prohibition. You know, don't do this, is who I am, this is what I'm going to do, but don't do this. And that might seem really puzzling to us. Wouldn't it make sense if, if you know something, if you know something of this magnitude, why are, why are we waiting? Why are we holding back? Let's go. Let's, let's go. What's going on here? What do we learn from this? Well, we see, in all of this, we see something of Jesus' exalted person and his astonishing purposes, but also, I will just say, the mystery of his plan. And there are times in the mystery of his plan, we simply need to listen and yield and submit to what it is he's saying. Okay, so why? Why is Jesus saying it's not time? Is it because he's scared? Is it because he's wavering? Is it because he's second-guessing his mission? No. It has to do with a lack of preparedness, but not on his part, but on the part of the people, the people as a whole first. The people had this, and some of you may be aware of this, some some pretty gross misconceptions of who and what the Messiah was to be and to do. And likely at this point in his ministry, if they had laid hold of this and gone forth with this, it would have been an uprising, riots in the street, a rebellion put down in a brutal way by the Romans. That's what would have happened. Jesus will have none of that. It's not just the people as a whole, the crowds, the masses that are unprepared, it's the disciples. Yes, they have made much progress. They have come so far in their understanding. You think, go back and read the earlier chapters of Matthew and where they start and where they are now. But if you keep reading, you realize, oh my goodness, they've got so much further to go. They aren't ready either. The time isn't right. Now, they don't know that, right? How could they know? How could they know they've got so much further to go? All they know is where they are. And what Jesus says don't go yet. Yet. It's calling for patience. Jesus is saying, Trust not in yourselves, not in what you perceive, not in how well you think you understand everything. Trust not in yourselves, trust in me. You have said, I am the Christ. Now live out of that, in this. You have said, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now live out of that, in this, trust me. In this charge, I think even in this charge... You see, there's this strong, uh, this this order, this imperative that he gives to them. We see something of him being, again, this exalted Messiah, the Christ. The problem is we are so, they were so, we are so nearsighted. I'm so nearsighted. I don't mean this literally. I, I had my contact lens prescription changed a few months ago. And while that's been very helpful and seeing things at a distance better, I have to tell you, in recent weeks, it's getting to the point where it's difficult for me to to read finer print. So be ready. You're going to see some reading glasses up here, simply because of just how it is. Uh, I'm nearsighted. And I get into problems when I forget that. When I think I can see. Now let's roll with that for a minute. We get into problems, us nearsighted people, when we think we can see and we can't. Think about how many ways, how many times our grand ideas collide with His plans and timing for us. We are absolutely convinced that we need, let me give you some examples that we need that romance in order to be fulfilled. We need that job in order to be successful. We need that healing in order to be made whole. We need him to answer this way in order to move on. And how many times In his wisdom, he says either no or wait. And it might be be nothing wrong with a thing in and of itself. It could be a matter of timing. It could be the thing in and of itself. But he in his wisdom is saying no or wait. If we take a step back and remember and can recall again what he has revealed, of who He is as the exalted Christ, the Son of the living God, and His purposes that cannot be undone and how good ultimately they are, if we will let those things settle in, we can take that answer, the no and the wait, because we can trust Him. We can trust him. He's the Christ, the one for whom we should long, the one to whom we must look. But there's one last thing, just wrapping this up. If all this is true, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You've come to make all things new. And I have this terrifying, terrible, nagging, screaming sense all the time, varying levels, just depending on where I look, that things aren't the way they ought to be. When are you going to make them the way they ought to be? How much longer? That was the question the Israelites for centuries were asking, waiting for his first coming. It's, it's what so many, you know, children, young children ask in the backseat of the car on the long road trip, you know, waiting for that to get, arrive at that destination that they've been promised is so great, and whatever that grand place is, and it's so, they're waiting so long, and the road is so long, and there's all this, this, this uh, anticipation, and the question comes again and again and again, are we there yet? And we're asking the same question in just a slightly different way, not just are we there yet, but when are we going to be there, how much longer? It will come at His next coming, which we know is coming, as surely as the first did. The Bible tells us that we now live in the time between the times, what is described as the last days. That's where we are now, the last days, the time between the times, given an assurance That he is coming again to make all things new to make all things right we know this because he has spoken he's told us that and his word is true and he never changes his mind or his word we know this because he died on our behalf demonstrating his love for us of course he's not lying to us playing a trick we know this because of his resurrection that the Scriptures describe as the first fruits, a foretaste, and a guarantee of what is to come. We know this because His Spirit is at work in us in mysterious ways even now, in and through us, not fully and completely, but really and truly preparing us, pointing us towards when, again, all is made full, all is made complete. Things are not as they ought to be. No, they're certainly not. That's true. But so too is this. One day the enemy's insurrection is going to be put down. The beachhead, if I can use this imagery, the beachhead has already been established. It's just a matter of time before the full landing force arrives and the war is done. He is the Christ come to make all things new. For him we should long, to him we should look. Let's pray.